Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program brought to you by Radio New Zealand Sport. Coming up on this week's show, we take in the first competitive Aussie rules match to be played outside of the island continent. A tearful Andre Lamanis bids goodbye to the New Zealand Breakers. The director of this year's Rugby League World Cup talks about the tournament and the growth of the game in the Pacific. The Melbourne Rebels upper hut winger Jason Woodward considers taking the field against New Zealand rugby teams. And the Dunedin rally driver Emma Gilmore talks about her new car and the future of women in motorsport. More than 22,000 people turned out at Wellington Stadium on Anzac Day to witness the first competitive game of Australian football, or Aussie rules, to be played outside of Australia. The Sydney Swans, who are the defending AFL champions, beat Melbourne's St Kilda Saints 79-63. The match was used to gauge the sport's popularity and potential in New Zealand. We sent our reporter Jacob McSweeney to the game. Oh, no! Oh, Jeremy Seal is a New Zealander keen to understand the attraction of Aussie rules. After experiencing some of the game's massive crowds in Australia, he says he was curious to see how it would turn out in his country. I've been to the AFL game before and they get huge crowds over in Australia and I wanted to see what the big buzz is about. Electric. Electric. The last time I saw it was this big, was at an All Blacks test, so... No, well, well done, Aussie rules. Nick Coulthard is AFL New Zealand's National Secondary Schools and High Performance Development Manager. He says it was an historic night. I've got all the under-18 boys that have just played in the under-18 national championships and they're, they're, they're only just starting to realise how, how much of a historical moment that this is. Is For the first time in 140 years that the AFL are playing premiership points outside of Australia. So it's a fairly significant moment and for them to choose New Zealand, it's only going to help the sport here in New Zealand. He says New Zealand and Australia share similar sporting attitudes and he doesn't see why Aussie rules won't become popular here. We're not trying to compete against any other sport here in New Zealand. What we are doing is trying to complement, supplement, whatever you want to call it, with other codes. And with the skills and, 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 the, and everything that they learned from this code, they transfer very well across to other codes. And if we can help someone in a professional career, fantastic. James Kuzel plays as a halfback flank for the national team here, known as the New Zealand Hawks. They beat South Pacific Academy 54-21 to in the build-up to the AFL fixture, and Kuzel says opening for an AFL game was a special moment for him. Amazingly excited. It's a historical day for AFL. We haven't really had a chance to play an Anzac Day test outside of Australia for any proper professional AFL. So having this there and being able to open for it was just a dream come true, really. A Swans fan, Scott Honeyset, travelled to New Zealand with his mother for the game and sums up what the night was about. New Zealanders love a, a sporting contest and you know the Warriors do well for New Zealand in rugby league and the AFL, I think, would like to have a team from New Zealand. That's what this is all about, to see if there's enough level of support here to perhaps look at establishing a team. Linda Dickey travelled with her husband Brian from their hometown Nowra, south of Sydney, to watch their beloved Swans team in action. 
They gave me an assessment of how the game was going at half-time. Oh, it's been pretty scrappy, really. But, uh, I think it's uh, yeah, dewy, a little bit wet, different sort of a ground. Um, it's a sh- smaller ground. Both teams are you know, adjusting to that because these are elite players that are used to playing on a much, you know, much bigger ground. Another Swans fan, Brian Seymour, was with them and he predicts New Zealand to have a bright future in the game. In 15, 20 years, we'll have Kiwi stars. New Zealand will be a force in AFL within, you'd have to say, 20 years at the outside. 10, 10 at best. The defending champions, the Sydney Swans, were the winners on the night, beating St Kilda 79-63. to But it will be regarded as a success for the AFL administrators, with a total attendance of 22,546, making it the second biggest crown for a sports fixture, beaten only by the Rugby Sevens at the Wellington Stadium this year. That was Jacob McSweeney reporting for Extra Time. Having led the New Zealand Breakers to a record-equalling hat-trick of Australian Basketball League titles, the club's coach Andre Lamanis has resigned. After eight years with the Auckland-based club, Lamanis has been named the new coach of the Australian national side, the Boomers, on a three-year deal. His replacement at the Breakers is expected to be Dean Vickerman, the long-time assistant to Lamanis. In one of the great tearful news conferences, Lamanis told media he's proud of what he's achieved in New Zealand and is honoured to take over the Australian national team. Obviously an a amazing opportunity for me to go and be the head coach of the national team in Australia, my home country. It's one of those things that uh, you, know, you do dream about. And to be the guy to have the responsibility of leading the country is, is very humbling and I'm honoured to be given that opportunity. Obviously leaving the break is a club that's been such a big part of my life for the last eight years where I've grown as a person... I've grown as a coach. They've supported me and given me the opportunity to experience this wonderful journey. I certainly leave with a, with a heavy heart, but obviously it's been a, a wonderful experience here and a wonderful journey. As a club, one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that we've built a, a very solid foundation. We've invested in people. We've always wanted people to be the best that they can be. What we've certainly proven over time is that the club is always bigger than any one person. You know, when Kirk left, everyone thought, well, that would be the end of our success. When Gary left and we made the decision with Pledge, everyone thought that would be the end of our success. But the club is in a very solid position because of the foundations that we've laid. So it will be with me. The club is very well positioned to go forward and to continue success because of the, uh, the wonderful people that are involved within the club. Andre, do you, do you endorse Dean as the successor if the club chooses him? Absolutely. Dean's ready to coach the club, there's no doubt at all. You know, he's a fantastic coach. He's certainly grown in his time here with me. And I've, I've said, I think, probably over the last two, three years, I think he's a head coaching waiting. I think he'd be great at it. We can all see you're an emotional guy. What do you think the emotions will be like when in one of your first assignments you coach the Boomers against the Tall Blacks and against guys like Nicker and Tom? That's... It's hard and it's, uh, it's a unique feeling. I, I obviously have a, fortunately been through it as an assistant with the Boomers already. You build such relationships with these guys and you, know, you go to war with them, you go through the highs and lows and just build a special bond with them. So you have that unique connection anytime you win championships in particular with people, you have a unique special bond with those people. And so to then go and compete against them is strange. The competition's fine. Like, when you're playing, that's fine. Obviously, you're just involved in it, and you're into your group, and you're going. It's the afterwards. 
and either you're very disappointed and they're elated and you feel happy for them, or you're happy and they're disappointed and you feel badly for them. And that's a strange place to be, absolutely. How difficult Andre is going to be to let go over the next month of his team? Yeah, difficult. Every time I, uh, I think about it, I get a little emotional about it, but <clears throat> every journey comes to an end. Very excited about the opportunities that lie ahead for me, obviously. I'm a, I'm a member of the family, and you never leave the family. <laughs> when you arrive, plumbing in it, Did you really ever think that they'd get to Honestly. I don't think the reality is you ever come in to a situation and think, you know, yeah, we're going to go and win three championships. No, like, that's just unrealistic as far as this is what we're going to do. I think what you come into any situation is I want to make the place better. And that needs to be my lasting legacy. Is it when you leave, is it better than when you came? So, firstly, obviously, I think yes is the answer to that, and I'm proud of that. But when you come into a club, it's about, you know, we just need to get better today. What do we need to do to improve today? And that, you know, if we do enough of that and we stay focused on that over the course of time, it will improve the club. What I did know coming in and I remember saying it in my, um, my application letter, was that I thought this club, of all the clubs in the league, had the most potential. You know, there's a whole country behind it. There's obviously a base of young Kiwi talent that plays there that have special athletic abilities and that we had an opportunity to harness all that. I truly believed in that, and I think as a club we've done a great job of getting to that point. You never know what that's going to lead to. You know, you never... You never know what that's going to lead to, but um, it's led to something pretty good. What do you want to be remembered for? Those three banners up on the on the wall, or I guess player person you leave at the club. Like the winning is great, obviously you, you enjoy that, but it's about helping the players be the best that they can be. And when I told Mika that I had this job, and he and he, uh, he got emotional. Like, there's no greater reward for me than to know that players thought I helped them. Andre, just the national uh, side of this, the game, obviously the Breakers have done wonderful things for the profile of basketball and getting young players involved and stuff. But they're having to have a crowdsourcing website to fund the Tall Blacks and the Tall Ferns and then the next campaign, which I think is against Australia. What do you think of the, the approach from the, from the government, the, the funding side of it for New Zealand basketball? Let's go cap and hand in them. It's unfortunate for New Zealand basketball that they don't get any funding from Sport New Zealand and so they have to become entirely self-funded. I don't understand the environment of funding and, and how those things are allocated, but what I do know is that participation in basketball continues to grow. You want to encourage kids in particular to go out and be healthy and to get involved in sport. And if you don't give an allocation of funding to sports governing bodies to be able to help do that, you know, to keep kids involved in the game and to have them aspire to something and have them involved in the sport, it's pretty hard to get those outcomes that you're after. That was the former Breakers coach, Andre Lamanis. The director of the Rugby League World Cup, Nigel Wood, has just made a whistle-stop tour of the Southern Hemisphere as teams from this part of the world build up to the October tournament. 
Mr Wood was in Australia to take in the Anzac Test between the Kiwis and Kangaroos, as well as the Pacific Test between Samoa and Tonga. Speaking for Papua New Guinea, he told Vinnie Wiley that everything he's seen bodes well for a competitive World Cup. It is a very exciting time. I think that it's a feature of the sport that we can be sometimes be a little harsh on ourselves and a little bit self-critical about you know the number of potential winners of world tournaments. It's no different to other sports, you know, whether it be football or rugby or cricket. You know, you will always get some nations that are repeatedly competitive to lift the trophies, but that shouldn't actually detract from what will be a, a great celebration. We've got some wonderful athletes here in this part of the world, the Pacific Island nations here in Papua New Guinea. There's some fantastic athletes are doing some tremendous work in building systems and structures in place that should ensure that they are competitive on a sustainable basis. So, you know, I think you know, international competition is the, the summit of all uh, competition in any walk of sporting life, and uh, we're very much looking forward to the World Cup in 2013 as a, a proper test of the, the breadth and depth of our great sport. It's certainly been a long time since the uh, Northern Hemisphere has hosted one, uh, 13 years if I'm right there, so uh, I assume you guys are you know, well overdue to, to having uh, you know, that spectacle in front of your home fans. Everybody in the UK is, is exceptionally um, uh, excited by, by the World Cup. It's been formally hosted by England and Wales. They are, they're the joint hosts, but there are also matches in France and in Ireland uh, as we kind of try to balance uh, the needs of, of of putting most of the competition on in areas of the of Europe where we know there is the strongest support for the code, but also at the same time using the opportunity of producing world class competition to spread the gospel about the sport. So we, so Australia, for instance, are playing in in Ireland, which will be a first for them, uh, and there are a couple of games down in France as well. So that's the, all of it bodes well for what we think will be a very exciting competition. And of course, you're in Port Moresby at the moment uh, in Papua New Guinea, which is possibly the only country in the world where rugby league is the national sport so it's, it's a place where rugby league is followed possibly more passionately than anywhere else in the world I think that's the case certainly on the evidence of, uh, that I've received over the course of the last 24 hours it's, uh, it, it, rugby league is a very important part of, of life here in, in, in Papua New Guinea and uh, at a meeting yesterday with the Minister of Sport he set out his vision for how rugby league is going to be progressed over the course of the next five years they've got some very competent officials here on the ground that are going to make sure that they work towards a plan which will mean that they are consistently and sustainably competitive with an elite training squad and a, a great domestic competition and, and you're right it, you know, the sport doesn't have many countries where it can say it is truly the national sport, but this is one of them, and we should celebrate that fact. And uh, as the countdown to October gets ever closer, I mean, what is your role and what is your team sort of doing now in these last few months to, you know, tick all the boxes and, and get everyone, uh, you know, tickets sold and get, you know, all the teams ready and whatnot? What, what are your sort of key uh, things in these remaining few months? We are in, in what you know some people call the blast zone when it comes to tournament uh, preparation. You know we've got uh, less than six months to go. We've set ourselves some very searching targets in terms of 500,000 ticket sales. We've got um, three, particularly three great blue ribbon events: the opening ceremony in Cardiff on October the 26th, uh, which will feature England, Australia, and Wales and Italy. But then we've got a double header semi-final uh, at Wembley Stadium and a final at Old Trafford, Manchester. Great theatres of sport that uh, deserve 
deserve to be staging rugby league events of this uh, standard. So we've got some tickets to sell. Uh, most of the operational stuff uh, it has been uh, undertaken already and it's been well planned. There's Obviously there's a delivery of that, um, getting athletes around, making sure arrangements are uh, appropriate, training venues, making sure all the commercial aspects of the World Cup are working well, uh, negotiating and dealing with our broadcast partners to ensure that the total reach of the tournament is as wide as possible to make sure that the true quality of rugby league is seen by as many people around the globe as possible. The tournament director for the Rugby League World Cup, Nigel Wood, speaking with Vinnie Wiley for Extra Time. The Melbourne Rebels winger Jason Woodward is one of an increasing number of New Zealanders turning out for an Australian Super Rugby franchise. Unable to gain a contract with his home franchise, the Hurricanes, the upper heart player had to look elsewhere to make his way in professional rugby. Woodward's on a two-year deal with the Rebels and is one of four New Zealanders at the franchise. He'll play against the New Zealand side for the first time when the Rebels take on the Crusaders in Christchurch, which he told Stephen Hewson is a strange feeling. It feels uh, completely odd, to be honest. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't think this would be happening 12 months ago. I'd be playing for an Australian side travelling to New Zealand. Um, I thought it would be the other way around, but no, it's good. You know, I've, I've loved my time in Melbourne so far, and I'm um, yeah, looking forward to finally getting to play a New Zealand side. And the Australian teams have had some, um, well, they've had the wood on the New Zealand teams in the competition this year. Yeah, there's um, been a couple of um, surprising games, you know, with the force um, managing, managing to knock the Crusaders over last week. It was pretty uh, surprising. And, you know, there's um, the Waratahs and the Reds have been playing really well, so and, and the Brumbies as well. So, yeah, the um, Aussie side's really stepped it up this year. And, yeah, it's, it's making for an uh, interesting competition. Any idea what that might be down to? There's talk that the with the Lions tour coming up, uh, that may have given some of the Australian players an extra edge. It's definitely exciting times for uh, Australian rugby over here, having the um, the Lions tour. You know, it, it only comes around um, once every twelve years, so I'm sure a lot of the boys are all stepping up and um, trying to put their hand up for international honours. So, yeah, maybe that uh, contributes towards the um, you know the the level the boys are playing at. But um, yeah, it's just good to see. Um, you know, it's it's making for a lot of close games and um, the Super Rugby's been, you know, not only really enjoyable to play in this year, but it's been interesting to watch as well, so, yeah. How have you found that, that step up to Super Rugby from from the likes of NPC? It's definitely been a big step up. It's, um, you know, just that much more faster and that much more physical. It's, um, you know, it's definitely uh, making it challenging. You know, the um, outside back, you're getting less time with the ball and less opportunities to do something with it, so it's yeah, it's really enjoyable. Um, I'm relishing the the step up, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely um, it's definitely tough. How different or how much of an adjustment have you had to to make when it comes to playing for an Australian franchise? Are, are the processes are, are things that much different? Um, no, it, it, to be honest, it hasn't been too much different. You know, the um, the quality of the coaching staff we've got at the Rebels is, you know, it's really good. Um, Damien Hill, he's a really good coach and he's got a really good coaching staff um, around him with the likes of Matt Cripvane and um, Nathan Gray. You know, they've, they've obviously got a lot of experience in, um, in rugby, both being Wallabies and stuff. So, yeah, it, um, the, the, the step-up's been really good and the, the, um, you know, the level of, the quality of coaching staff we've got made that transition really easy for me. So, yeah, it's been good. How have you found it being in Melbourne, a city that obviously there's so much sport going on and, and rugby's not the not the number one code? It's pretty funny when you're um, walking down the street with a few of the uh, boys who probably um, would get recognised anywhere in the world and, yeah, they walk down Melbourne and no one knows who they are, so it's quite funny. Um, 
but yeah, you know, it, I guess on the flip side, it's, it's quite nice. You know, um, there's there's a lot of sport on here, and um, you know, I'm sort of a sports fanatic, so you know, it's quite good to go watch some tennis and the cricket, and uh, you know, the rugby league, and obviously the AFL is pretty big here. So um, yeah, you know, it's a really busy place, but it's definitely been really enjoyable to live in. While you're obviously disappointed at not making the Hurricanes squad, do you think it's possibly going to be a blessing in disguise for your career? It's maybe taking you out of your comfort zone? Uh, yeah, it has. You know, um, It's been good to get out of Wellington and experience other, you know, other, other styles of coaching. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, was, I guess I was disappointed, but, um, you know, I've moved on from that. And, um, you know, I'm looking back on it, I'm really happy that I'm over here um, you know, playing in the Super Rugby, that was that was definitely my goal, and um, yeah, it's just it's been it's been really good. And what have you made the Crusaders? They're obviously struggling a bit this season, sitting just above the, the Highlanders in the New Zealand Conference. Um, there must be uh, the Rebels must think that you must think you've got a bit of a chance or a good chance. Yeah, you know, we've um, we've had a couple of close losses this season, um, which has you know sort of kept us on the back foot, and then obviously um, we had a disappointing tour to South Africa, so. Yeah, at the moment we're you know we're probably um, being looked at as the underdogs for you know the most of the rest of the games for our season. So um, you know that sits quite well with us. And coming up against a you know a side like the Crusaders, we know they're going to be really tough. They always are. It uh, doesn't matter where they're sitting on the table; they're always going to be a tough team to play. So um, we're looking forward to playing them. Um, you know we've got a lot to prove uh, to our, not only ourselves but to, you know to our fans and to you know the Australian rugby side. We're, we're, you know, we're not, we're not taking this game um, lightly at all. And you're keen to, to stick around in, in Australia. How long do you, your contract for? Uh, my contract, um, I've signed on with the Rebels for two years. So, um, yeah, I've got this season in um, 2014. Um, in terms of what happens after that, um, you know, I haven't made my mind up about anything. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm really enjoying my time here in Melbourne. But um, I guess that's something I'll just, I'll, I'll jump that hurdle when I get to it. Have you been questioned much over whether you might want to play for the Wallabies or anything like that? Yeah, I've been uh, I've been questioned a few times, and um, you know I've sort of said the same thing. Um, you know, I've, I've I'll take my opportunities as they come, and when there's time to make a decision, I'll make the decision then. But um, I'm not reading into too much at the moment. But um, yeah, coming over to Australia, I've definitely copped a bit of flack from the family and um, you know friends and stuff. But no, it's all good. You know, it's just a bit of banter and that. So. Well, it's yeah. just 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 the way it is of a professional rugby player, isn't it? If you want to make a, what your your way in the game, you've got to go where the where the jobs are. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've grown up my whole life wanting to be an All Black, and um, the passion to you know pull that black jersey on will never die, no matter where I am or who I'm playing for. Um, you know, and and looking back at that um, decision on coming to Melbourne, you know, um, at the end of the day, I didn't have you know any any other Super Rugby franchises to go to or choose out of, you know. Um, Rebels was, you know, my only offer at the time and, um, you know, I'm really thankful to be here and I'm thankful that Damien uh, picked me up, um, you know, and selected me to play for his squad. So, yeah, um, you know, at the same time, um, I, I do miss home, but, you know, it, it's been awesome living here and playing here and, you know, I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. The Melbourne Rebel from Upper Hutt, Jason Woodward, talking to Stephen Hewson. The number two women's rally driver in the world, Dunedin's Emma Gilmore, says comments from racing legend Sterling Moss that women don't have the mental toughness to compete in Formula One are unjust. Last week, the 83-year-old Moss told the BBC he thinks women have the physical strength but not the mental aptitude to race hard wheel-to-wheel. 
Gil Moore has come second in the Rally New Zealand Championship the last three years in a row and is also a member of the FIA's Women in Motorsport Commission. As well as talking about her new car for this year's rally season, Gilmore told me women have the potential to stand on the Formula One podium. It's a brave comment to make, but with all respect to Sterling, I mean, it's a very tough sport mentally for either gender, and the fact that we start with fewer females who get into the sport to start with, it's, it's less likely there's going to be someone at the pinnacle of the sport. I think it's an unfair comment for him to make because I think you know everyone's an individual and that there may be hopefully a young female driver coming up that does have the mental toughness to make it in the sport. There have actually been five Formula One female drivers (laughs) in the past and one of them has actually scored a point once. Right okay so okay in the modern era though has there been any? No not that I can recall. not so recently but again it gives weight to the argument that they can get there but there's still only a few Sebastian Vettels or Michael Schumacher's There's also still a lot of male Formula One drivers that are near the pinnacle, but they don't quite make it either. So it's an unfair generalisation to make it about gender. Hasn't Danica Patrick disproved Mr Moss's comments here? We have a woman racing at the highest level of open car racing. Yeah, in America, and Danica's changed codes this year. So, yeah, exactly. I think, like in any sport, it's tough to reach the top. And there's fewer females doing the sport to start with, so there's definitely fewer that eventually make that top level of the sport. Have you ever raced an open-wheel car? I'm told that you need quite a bit of strength to control those things. Yeah, um, I haven't driven an open-wheeler vehicle. I, I've driven like a Formula Ford, which is miles away from what you know the Formula One cars are. I think there is a lot of strength required, and if you generally look at Formula One races or people with open-wheelers, they're pretty well developed through their necks. And I spoke to Leanne Tander. She's a successful Australian race car driver. She's competed in Formula 3, I think it was, Formula Holden in Australia. And we just talked about the strength required in that, and she did specific training to make sure that she was you know, strong enough to to put up with the demands of the sport. And, I mean, you don't sort of just luck your way into a Formula 1 drive. If the female driver has worked her way up through all the grades, I'm sure she would be strengthening herself all the way through to eventually be ready when she got there. Would she have the mental goods, though, to to win, (laughs) do you think? I think you can ask that of of any driver, um, regardless of gender. I think, you know, for a female to to even get anywhere near the pinnacle of sport, they've got a certain degree of mental toughness to get there. So um, it's an unjust comment to... Yeah, to make a general statement that that we don't have the the mental toughness. Right, so as a member of the International Women in Motorsport Commission, perhaps you could tell me whether this kind of prejudice is something that the Commission is worried about. Um, I mean, I think that's why they've created it, because they want to have more women into motorsport. We want to understand why there aren't more more females in the sport and um, and look at ways that we can encourage and, and get more females into there. I think that my approach, or the way I view it, is that I think we should be trying to encourage all sorts of people into the sport, not just females. I think, you know, the sport in general, we need to encourage, you know, boys and girls at a younger age to be getting into motorsport. And I think with females, I think if they can see other role models in the sport, then naturally females all of a sudden think, well, I could be doing that and want to give it a go. But the commission is set up so that we can understand what might be barriers and look at ways of trying to overcome that. Can you talk about any of those strategies, any of those barriers? On the international scale, they're just looking at maybe doing sort of a scholarship type thing of you know trying to find a young star to bring them through to the top of the sport. On a more local level, Motorsport New Zealand have got behind the initiative and we've been looking at ways of, of more just creating more of a network, I suppose, of female competitors. And it's not actually just the competitors, it's, it's all the females that are involved with the sport and all the different levels because 
yes, you have the drivers, but you also have, in rallying, you have co-drivers, but you also have all the officials, the event organisers, the secretaries. There's a lot of females involved with motorsport, but at different levels. So just creating that network where you sort of got a support group and they understand the different pressures or barriers or what, whatever it may be. Um, they can talk amongst themselves and, and that gives a bit more strength to the group as well. Can we now talk a little bit about your season now? And I understand that last year you came second in the New Zealand Rally Series, is that right? Yes, we finished second. It was our third year in a row we finished second, so I was a, I was a little bit sick of being bridesmaid, to be honest. <laughs> and that was in a Subaru, but this year you've changed your car. Yes, um, this year the New Zealand Championship has changed its regulations or changed the, the class structure, so they've moved away from what's like an international classes where we run to a production formula um, and they've basically opened up the rules. And this has given us a really good opportunity to bring a new manufacturer into the sport and that's with Suzuki New Zealand. So Suzuki New Zealand, we went to them with an idea of what we wanted to do. Uh, this is about September last year and they were right behind it and we've been building a car since then. So it was a very ambitious project because we started with the road-going Suzuki Swift Sport and we turned it into a four-wheel drive, turbocharged rally monster. So um, it was a lot of work required and the team down here in Dunedin have done a fantastic job. Did you race in the Rally of Otago? Unfortunately, no. We, we ran out of time. It was, um, it was always going to be a tight time schedule, but we got out and we did some kilometres as the course car on the Sunday morning, so it was good we got to show the car off, um, and then we've been finishing her off and getting all ready for the next event, which is the Rally of Whangarei. It's very exciting wee car, so can't wait to drive it and drive it in anger. It'll be great. That was the rally driver Emma Gilmore looking forward to racing her new Suzuki in the International Rally of Whangarei, which runs on the 18th and 19th of May. That's the show for this week. You can send your comments or feedback to sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Ben Robinson. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.